Tonight we'd like to continue our study in the book of Esther. We'll be looking in chapter 5 and I think perhaps chapter 6. When we concluded a couple weeks ago in chapter 4, we find where Esther had asked her uncle Mordecai to fast along with all the Jews in the city of Shushan and to fast for three days. She says, while you're doing that, me and my maidens in the palace likewise will fast for three days. Now, if we've told you the word pray or prayer is not in the book of Esther. The name of God is not in the book of Esther. But certainly God is in the book of Esther. He was certainly in the events that we find recorded in the book of Esther. And I believe when they were fasting, they were also praying, even though it's not recorded for us. Now, the number three, as we notice, is a number of completeness, oneness. 1 John 5, 7, there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. We find in Revelation 1, 8, where the Lord said, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last, which is, which was, and which is to come. And many other examples could be given, but again, the number three is significant from that point of view. So for three days they have fasted and they have prayed. And this was all preparation. And preparation is very important. It was very important for us to be prepared before we got here tonight. Very important for me to be prepared. But you likewise. We prepare by praying to the Lord. We prepare by separating ourselves from the things of this life, the things of this world, to focus and concentrate on the worship service so that God might be properly honored. There's a number of things we can do to prepare ourselves. And this is what Esther is doing, along with the support of Mordecai and all the Jews in the city of Shushan. And after three days, we find in verse 1 of chapter 5, where she puts on her royal apparel. Esther wanted to look the very best she could look as part of her preparation. She was going to go to the royal house where there was a royal throne. And there would be a king sitting on that royal throne. And she's the queen. She's going to put on her royal apparel. Look at the life of Joseph. You go to Genesis 41. Remember, Joseph was in prison. But the king had a dream. And, of course, the Lord was showing him there's going to be seven years of plenty, followed by seven years of famine. And no one could interpret the dream. But the butler remembered his fault. When he was in prison, he had a dream, and Joseph properly interpreted it. And so he tells the king, and he sends for Joseph. But the Bible tells us that Joseph shaved and changed his garments. Now, I wonder why that's put in there. I wonder why that's put in the scriptures. Well, I think it's there to let us know that we should always try to look our best. That first impressions are very important. And we should do the very best we can to look our best and give God our best, no matter what we're talking about. Um, we put on something very important when we come to the house of God, at least we should. Found in 1 Peter 5, 6, he says, Clothe yourselves with humility. For God resists the proud and giveth grace to the humble. We're told in Colossians and also Ephesians that we'll lay aside the old man and we'll put on the new man. I like to refer to the old man as the grave clothes. We're to put off our grave clothes and put on our grace clothes. So there's preparation that we need to make as Esther was preparing to do something that could mean her death. 
She was going to have to go before the king, and he had not called her. In fact, she had not seen the king in 30 days. But Mordecai reminded her that she might just be in this place at this very time for such a reason and cause of this. So she says, I'll pray for, and fast for three days. You fast for three days, and then I'll come before the king. And if I perish, I perish. She's willing to lay her life down if necessary in order to make a request to the king concerning her people that she now has become knowledgeable about that Haman, that wicked man, had got the king to sign a decree that at a certain time, at a year from now, on a certain day of a certain month, that this death warrant, you might say, would be issued and all the Jews in the Medes Persian Empire were going to be slain. Now we're going to see that Esther is a woman of faith. She's going to trust the Lord. She's going to put her trust in the Lord. You look in the book of Psalms 27, the last verse, verse 14. It says, Wait, I say, on the Lord. Be of good cheer, and he shall strengthen thine heart. Wait, I say unto thee, on the Lord. I think you see this in Esther right here. She has waited on the Lord through fasting and prayer. She now is going to display her courage, and God's going to strengthen her heart. So he says again, wait, I say, on the Lord. So Esther now goes into where the palace is, where the king is. And this is a very crucial time, isn't it? What will happen? You see, kings were very moody, especially oriental kings. She had no idea in the world what kind of day he was going to be having. Would he be grumpy? Would he be unhappy? Would he be discouraged? Whatever it might be, he might just say, well, you've approached me, I have not called for you. And if he does not hold out the golden scepter to her, then her life's going to be taken. What will be the result? Very important. Now, we read in Proverbs 21.1 where Solomon says that the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord, and he turneth it whithersoever as the rivers of water. This reminds me of a time when Moses was born, and his mother put him in an ark of bulrushes down into the river, the very river where the king had issued out a death warrant on the Jewish babies at that time. If a baby was born, it was a male child. Then that male child was to be drowned in the river. So Moses put in the ark of bulrushes in that river, and his sister stands at a distance, afar off, looking to see what's going to happen. One or two things are going to take place, most likely. One, Pharaoh's daughter, when she comes down to wash herself by the river, is going to see this baby, which she does, and when she sees the baby, she could very easily say this is one of the Hebrew babies, which she did. But my father has said all the male Hebrew babies that are born are be drowned in the sea. And she could just gave the word, and that's exactly what would have happened to Moses. But that didn't happen, did it? God in his providence was watching over him as well as his sister to see what was going to take place. And she fetches the baby, and then Moses' sister goes and gets Moses' mother and she comes and nurses the child and then at a certain time brings Moses to Pharaoh's daughter and she became his, her son. Moses will live to be 120 years of age. He could have died at three months old. But the providence of God was with Moses. The providence of God is going to be here with Esther. What's going to happen? Will the king hold out the golden scepter or will he not? Now a scepter was a, like a rod. It could be a stick a staff, a rod of some kind, you know, about this long. In this case, it's a golden scepter. 
But there's a scepter of the Lord Jesus Christ that's not made out of a stick. It's not made out of a piece of gold or anything. You read in Hebrews 1.8, it says, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. Now, I like that expression, don't you? Thy throne, O God. God has a throne. He's on the throne. He says, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. There's never going to be a time when God's throne is not going to exist and God's sitting on that throne. But he says, A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. That's the distinction. That's the difference in the scepter of the Lord Jesus Christ and the scepter of this wicked king. This is a wicked king we're talking about here. He is a wicked king. He is an evil king. That golden scepter is a symbolic of his power and authority. And he doesn't even have to say a word. If he doesn't hold out the golden scepter, they will come and take Esther, even though she's a queen. They'll come and take her, and her life will be taken. He doesn't even have to say a word. The law is already established. Everyone knows what the law is. Remember, Esther had told Mordecai about this, reminding him if she came and he did not hold out the golden scepter, her life could be taken. But now we see her faith. James chapter 2, verse 17 says, Even so I say unto thee that faith without works is dead. A man may say, Show me your faith without your works. I'll show you my faith by my works. Now he gives us two illustrations, Old Testament illustrations, Abraham and Rahab the harlot. You couldn't have two more different people than Abraham on one hand and Rahab on the other. And both of them display, as we read in their lives, are examples of walking by faith and proving your faith by your works. Abraham took his son Isaac on a mountain in obedience to God's command. And that proved he had faith. He obeyed what God said. And Rahab the harlot, she hid the spies that came there, the spy out in Jericho. She had faith and she proved her faith by her works. That's works in terms of, you might say, the court of public opinion. See, uh, justification is in three different ways. There's justification by the blood of Christ, which is applied to all the family of God. There's justification by faith, the court of your conscience. And there's justification by works, that is, in the court of public opinion. Now, she approaches the king. What will it be? Well, the Bible tells us very clearly in verse 2, and it was so when the king saw Esther the queen standing in the court that she obtained favor in his sight. Now that expression, finding favor in his sight, is also found in several other places. You turn to Genesis chapter 39, you'll find where Joseph was in prison in Egypt. But the Bible says that God brought Joseph into favor with the keeper of the prison. This is something God literally did. God did this. If God had not done this, he would not have been in favor with the keeper of the prison. But God did this. God in his providence intervened on behalf of Joseph, gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison, and the keeper of the prison elevated Joseph to be the head person down there. In the book of Daniel, in chapter 1, we find where Daniel and the Hebrew children had been taken to Babylon in captivity. And now the Babylonian king wants these four men plus other Others in the kingdom has been carefully selected and called out, so to speak. He wants all of them to eat the very best of the king's meat and the king's wine, drink the king's wine, but Daniel refuses to do so and go against the law of his God. So what's he going to do? Daniel prayed, and the Bible says God brought Daniel into favor. He brought him into favor. And God can do that for you. He can do that for me. God can bring you and me into favor with those that may be above us. You know, here's somebody who has a job, 
has to, having to work every Sunday. He's talked to his boss about it. His boss not very cooperative. So you take it to the Lord, and the Lord intervenes on his behalf. You pray to the Lord about it, and the Lord can bring you into favor with your employer. And one day you might say, you know, you've been asking me off on Sunday. I've rearranged things. I'm going to let you work where you can be off on Sunday. God can do that. He did it for Daniel. He did it for Joseph. And he's doing it right here on behalf of Esther. In fact, six times in the book of Esther, you'll find where she received favor in the sight of someone. This is the third time. She put on her royal apparel. Remember when she was selected to, along with all the others, to come before the king for one of them to be selected to be queen? When you read that, you'll find where Esther required nothing. She went on her natural beauty. Sometimes you hear about somebody say about somebody said, you know, they're beautiful in two ways. They're beautiful outwardly and they're beautiful inwardly. So their character is beautiful. Their appearance is beautiful. And what we've known at this point is Esther was a very beautiful woman. But the Bible says that those that were around her, she was brought into favor with them. And then she found favor in the sight of the king and the king selected her to become the queen. That was not by accident. That was by the providence of God. So this is the third time out of six the Bible says that Esther received favor in the sight of someone, this time the king. He, she, found, he, she found favor in his sight and the king held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. So Esther drew near and touched the top of the scepter. That would mean on behalf of Esther's part that she is accepting his grace. He's accepting his favor. He holds out the golden scepter to symbolize that she's been pardoned for her transgression. She's just transgressed the king's law and he pardons her and symbolizes that by holding out the golden scepter. It also symbolizes that you have found acceptance with me. Now I want you to think just for a moment about another king. One that's described in Revelation 19:16 as Lord of Lords and King of Kings. Now, I think you know who that is, right? You know who's Lord of Lords and King of Kings, correct? And I can assure you, again, the scepter of his kingdom is a scepter of righteousness. Now, the Lord said in Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. And I'll give you rest. The Lord here says, come unto me, but he qualifies it. He's speaking to those who are laboring and heavy laden. They're laboring and heavy laden because they've come to recognize that they're a sinner by nature. And they're living in a sinful world. And they have problems and they have discouragements and sorrows and one thing or another. And it's weighting them down. But the Lord says, you come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for my yoke is easy and my burden you know what, is light. That's the kind of king we've got. We don't have to worry about him rejecting us, do we? You don't have to come with uh, human fear before this throne. You can come boldly, as we read in Hebrews 4.16. He said, let us come boldly to the throne of grace. That word boldly means with confidence. Let us come with confidence to the throne of grace, that we might obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. That's 24-7. Every single day, every single hour, every single minute, every single second, we have the opportunity to come boldly to a throne of God's grace that we can obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. And tell me what day of the week it is that you don't have a need. <laughs> there are seven of them. You want to take a shot at it? 
We've already gotten to Thursday this week. We're, we're in the fifth day. Has it been a day this week you didn't need the Lord? <laughs> I don't think anybody's going to raise their hand on that one, do you? <laughs> don't think so. Hebrews eleven six. Without faith it's impossible to please God. But he that cometh unto him must believe that he is, and he's a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Now, that's the heavenly king, the heavenly throne, and we have the throne that we can approach to obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. That's in contrast to this king, this throne. Yes, it's a royal palace, a royal throne, uh, and the king has on his royal garments, and Esther's going to put on hers so that she can look the very best she can as she approaches the king she approaches with courage and she approaches with strength. She's a man, a woman of faith, a woman of courage, a woman of strength, and she's a woman of wisdom. And you'll find that because when she first approaches, here's what the king says to her. Then the king said unto her, What will thou, queen Esther, and what is thy request? It's something about her approaching him. First of all, she knows she would never approach him without him calling for her if there was not something very important, urgent about the situation. He says, what is thy request? See, when Nehemiah approached the king in Nehemiah chapter 2, he was the king's cupbearer. And one day he approached the king with a sad countenance, which was a no-no. Kings didn't want people around with a sad face. Uh, the king wanted everything around him to, to be joyful and joyous. He didn't want people around him uh, looking sad. But this day, Nehemiah could not help it. He looked sad, and the king said to him, What's wrong with you, Nehemiah? He says, This is a sign of sickness. Something is wrong with you. And Nehemiah prayed a real quick prayer, and the Lord opened up the door. And the, eventually, the king's going to ask Nehemiah, He's going to say, What is thy request, Nehemiah? God brought Nehemiah into favor with the king in that day. And Nehemiah got everything he asked for and several things beyond what he asked for. Ephesians 3.20, I think about that when I read about Nehemiah. Now unto him that is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all we ask or think according to the power that worketh in us. The power that works inside of you is resurrection power, it's divine power, it's stronger than atomic power, it's creation power. I mean, it's the, it's the supreme power, and it works in you. And by that power, you're able to do exceedingly abundantly above all things that we ask or think of God. He gives us the grace to be able to do it. She approaches, heals out the golden scepter. He says, what is thy request? It shall be given thee the half of the kingdom. <laughs> you read these kings in the Old Testament, you're going to find they made some silly statements. Do you really think he's going to give her half the kingdom? <laughs> That's what he says. And if he'd been serious about it, and it's the same thing you read in Mark chapter 6. In Mark chapter 6, you'll find where John the Baptist has told Herod that it's not lawful for him to have his brother, whose name is Philip, his wife named Herodias. And on his birthday, they have a big bash and a big feast. And Herodias' daughter dances before Herod, and he says unto her, What shall I give unto thee? I'll give thee even half of the kingdom. Now, I don't care how good she danced. She didn't dance that good. She didn't dance that good. No, it, it, you can't take that statement literally. But that is what he said. In fact, he's going to say it three times before it's all over with. And Esther answered, If it seemed good unto the king, let the king and Haman come this day unto the banquet that I prepared for them. This is a banquet of wine. You might say, why did she go ahead and make the request? Because she's a woman of wisdom. She's looking for the right time and the right place. 
Did you know sometimes you can have that right answer and say it at the wrong time? You can have the right answer, you can have the right information and say it at the wrong time and it just goes down the drain. In the book of Ecclesiastes 3 and 1, Solomon the wise man said, To everything there is a season and a time for every purpose under the heavens. And you're going to find 28 things, he says, there's a time for. And it's 14 categories uh, that you have there with a time on each side of it. A time, you know, to plant, a time to pluck out that which is planted. A time to born, a time to die, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. To everything there is a season. And a time for every purpose under the heavens. Somebody will say something to somebody, they get mad, and he'll turn to his wife and say, well, I told him the truth. Well, maybe you did, but it wasn't the right time, and it wasn't the right place. It's the time that you say things to people privately that you never say publicly. It's the truth either place. It's the truth if you say it publicly. It's the truth if you say it privately. There's a time for public rebuke. There's time for private counsel. And Esther knows this is not the time nor the place. She's trusting in the Lord. But let's just suppose the king said, well, I don't have time tomorrow night. I've already got obligations tomorrow night. See, the Lord is leading, the Lord is guiding, the Lord is directing in all of this. That's what you've got to see in the book of Esther. In many other places in the Bible, of course, God's providence is all over the Bible. But in the book of Esther, it is highlighted. So the king said, cause Haman to make haste, that he may do as Esther has said. So the king and Haman came to the banquet that Esther had prepared. And the king said to Esther, the banquet of wine, what is thy petition? It shall be granted thee. What is thy request? Even to the half of the kingdom it shall be performed. That's the second time he said it. She said, if I have found favor in thy sight of the king, if it please the king to grant my petition and perform my request, that the king and Haman come to the banquet, and I shall prepare for them, and I'll do tomorrow as the king has said. It's going to be banquet number two. So she didn't make a request when he first holds out the golden scepter. She doesn't make her request at the banquet of wine. She's got another banquet under consideration. And she invites them both to that banquet. Will the king accept? Yes, he will. Now let's see in verse 9. Because here you're going to see the pride of Haman come to the forefront. You're going to see what this man is really made out of. Beginning right here in verse 9. Then Haman went forth that day joyful... And with a glad heart, but when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he stood not up nor moved for him, he was full of indignation against Mordecai. The word indignation there means rage, it means anger, it means wrath. Mordecai didn't stand up for him, Mordecai didn't move for him, everybody else did. He was filled with indignation about this, full of wrath, full of anger. Now it's a saying that you can tell how big a man is or how little a man is, by the things that bother him, by the things that irritate him. If small things bother a person, irritate a person, they're usually a little person. But if it takes big things to bother them, and they can overlook the little things, the insignificant things, that tells you what kind of man or woman that person is. Are they a little person or are they a big person? Well, we're going to see how Haman's a very little person. Everybody stands for him, everybody moves for him, except one man, Mordecai, and it bothers him greatly. Nevertheless, Haman refrained himself, and when he'd come home, he sat and called for his friends and Jerish his wife, and Haman told them all the glory of his riches, the multitude of his children, all the things wherein the king promoted him, hiding, advanced him above all the princes and servants of the king. In other words, this man 
really knows how to brag. He specializes in bragging. <laughs> He's a very boastful in individual. Proverbs 6.16 says, These six things the Lord hates, and the first thing on that list is a proud look. He is a proud man. He's telling his wife, he's telling his friends, I've been promoted, I've been advanced, look at all my riches, look at all my family. It says, look at me, look at me, look at me. Here's the time that if you could have bought Haman for what he was worth and sold him for what he thought he was worth, you could retire. <laughs> A big difference between the two, right? Yeah, if you could have bought him for what he actually was worth and then transcend what he thought he was worth, you'd be on easy street because he thought he was worth a lot. Verse 12, Haman said, Moreover, yea, Esther the queen did let no man come in with the king unto the banquet that she had prepared but myself. I'm the only one. She invited the king, and I'm the only one besides him. She invited, and let, let, let me come to, work, to the banquet. And tomorrow I'm invited also with the king. Yet all this availeth me nothing, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. His advancement, his promotion, his family, he's got ten children. He's, he's a very wealthy man, you know that, because of all the money he offered to put in the king's treasure for the king to sign the decree to slay all the Jews. From a worldly perspective, he's got it all, does he not? But he says, this, all this avails me nothing. As long as I walk by that gate and that man Mordecai just sits there. He doesn't honor me. He doesn't stand up for me. He doesn't move for me. And so his wife has got the solution. Verse 14, Then said Zeresh's wife and all his friends unto him, Let a gallows be made 50 cubits high. That's 75 feet. You know how high 75 feet is? It's a long ways up there. You think he wanted everybody to see what he's planning? You think he thought the Jews would be intimidated and all would get in line and they see that he has uh, hung Mordecai out of these gallows 50 cubits, 75 feet high. And tomorrow, speak down to the king that Mordecai may be hanged thereon. She said, now tomorrow you talk to the king about it. Then go thou in merrily with the king and to the banquet and thing pleased Haman and he caused the gallows to be made. Chapter 6, verse 1. On that night, not another night, that night, the king couldn't sleep. On that night, could not the king sleep, and he commanded to bring the book of records of the chronicles, and they were read before the king. That's like, um, again, uh, I'm sleepy, and uh, I asked somebody to bring me the minutes of, of business meetings. Is anything any more boring than that? Bring me the minutes of the business meetings. I guess he'd done that before. He had worked. Of course, you know, I've told you this before. I will never forget it. I just treasure what I'm about to tell you. When Brother Oscar Sullivan come through the check, checkout line. When he come through the handshake line. <laughs> he said, Brother Lawrence, he said, I just want to tell you now, when I have trouble sleeping, I just put on one of your CDs, and it soothes me and just comforts me. First thing I know, my eyes close, and I just drift right off to sleep. That was a compliment. He was giving me a compliment. <laughs> so I, I, I forgot what I told him. I probably told him, well, I can give you a, a bucket full of them if you want them. <laughs> Take care of all your restless nights. But anyway, I won't read this. But it was found written. You know how big those books, those chronicles were? They were huge. Everything was recorded. And somehow or another, 
when they opened it to read it, they opened it at the very place at where they had recorded where Mordecai had overheard a plot of two men. You go back and read it at the end of chapter 2, I believe it is. Overheard it, let the people, the authorities know, and they went and got those two men and they hung them and they were not able to slay the king. They had a plot to assassinate the king and Mordecai spared the king's life by overhearing the plot and making it be known. And the king says, well, was anything done for him? Did he receive a reward? The king wasn't even aware of that. The king wasn't even aware that Mordecai had saved his life on an earlier occasion. It's recorded right here. What do you think the chances are outside of God? They'd opened the, the, the book of the Chronicles to the very place where it was written, what Mordecai did. What do you think the chances are of that? Let's suppose this. Let's suppose he had been rewarded. And they opened up to it. And read it to the king. And it says, and Mordecai was rewarded. He was given X amount of money and one thing and another. Well, that would have ended it, wouldn't it? But you see, right at the time he's thinking about this and asking the question, was he rewarded? And given the answer, no, he was not rewarded. Haman is thinking about Mordecai. And he's come early in the morning. He's come early in the morning and, and I guess some noise is made or something. The king says, who's out there? And they looked and said, well, Haman's out there. They said, let him come on in. Now I want you to notice here, the king is thinking about Mordecai. And Haman's thinking about Mordecai. The king's thinking about honoring Mordecai and Haman is thinking about killing Mordecai <laughs> at the same time. And the king just starts off without any background. And this teaches me a lesson. It teaches me, before I give an answer or my input to something, I need to know all the details of it. He said, Haman, he says, what, do you, what would you do to a man that the king desires to honor? And Haman, the Bible says, thought, well, surely he's talking about me. He said in his heart, surely he's talking about me. You know, there's a very famous actor. His name is John Barrymore, a stage actor one thing or another. And he said one time, my chiefest regret in life is I couldn't sit out in the audience and watch me act. <laughs> that was his chief regret. More, uh, Haman says, he must be talking about me. He says, says to the king, he says to the king, he says, this is what you ought to do. You ought to put your apparel on this man, the king's apparel. And you need to put the king's crown upon his head and put him upon the king's horse and then get some man to take him and lead him down Main Street. And the king liked that idea. Notice what he says. Now Haman thought in his heart to whom would the king delight to do more honor than to himself. And Haman answered the king for the man whom the king delighted to honor that the royal apparel be brought which the king used to wear and the horse that the king rides upon and the crown royal which is set upon his head and let this apparel and horse be delivered to the hand of one of the king's most noble princes. Well that's, that's Haman all right. That they may array the man with whom the king delighted to honor and bring him on horseback through the street of the city and proclaim before him then it shall be done to the man whom the king delighted to honor. Then the king said to Haman, Make haste and take the apparel and the horse as thou hast said, and do even so to Mordecai the Jew that sit at the king's gate. 
Let nothing fail of all thou hast spoken. Can you imagine what he thought at this moment? Can you imagine what Haman thought? He thought he was talking about him. Haman thought, I'll get the king's apparel on. I'll wear the king's crown. I'll ride the king's horse. And somebody, a prominent person in the kingdom here, will lead him right down the street in front of all the people, and the people will honor me. You can't get a better example of pride than this. You just can't do it. Now, I know Nebuchadnezzar would run a close second in the book of Daniel, chapter 3. Remember when he walked out and looked at his kingdom? And the words come out of his mouth, you know, look what I have done. Before the words got out and good, he was driven off his throne, out of his kingdom, off his throne, out into the field where he grazed grass like the oxen, his nails grew like bird claws, his hair like bird feathers. Uh, it's just hard to imagine such a mess as he must have been with his hair like that and his nails like that. He's grazing grass like the oxen of the field. And then the Bible says when he came to himself. Daniel 4, 35, one of the greatest verses in all the Bible. He said, all the inhabitants are reputed as nothing, but God works his will among the army of heaven, among all the inhabitants of earth, and none can stay his hand, or saith unto him, what doest thou? That's a pretty good example of pride too, isn't it? But it also goes to show you that how God can humble a man. That's why Peter said, God resisted the proud, and what's he do with the humble? He receives the humble, does he not? He resists the proud, receives the humble, and I don't want to be resisted of God. Do you? I don't want God to stiff arm me. I want to draw nigh to God. But if I draw nigh to God, I got to lay pride aside. What do I have to be proud of to begin with? Anything and everything that I am, anything and everything that I have and possess, where did it come from? It came from the hand of God. It didn't come from my own hand. I mean, I may have done certain things, whatever, but God, whatever I did, God gave me the ability to do it. God gave me the gift. God gave me the talent. God put it in my hands. And I want to be a good steward of it. I want to use what God's given unto me in a way that honors and glorifies the Lord. So that's what Paul told to the Corinthians. He says, what have you received of your own self? Nothing. Everything you've got. The breath of life. How could you do anything if you didn't have the breath of life? God gave you the breath of life. He gave you the gift. He gave you the talent. He gave you the ability to be what you are, do what you do, accomplish what you accomplished, and he deserves all the praise and the glory for it. Oh, Haman is humiliated. Then took Haman the apparel and the horse and arrayed Mordecai. Can you imagine as he puts the king's apparel upon this man, how much he hates this man, how much he despises this man? Uh, how his raft is, and he's having to put the apparel on him, he's putting the crown on him, he helps him get on the horse, and then he leads the horse right down the street of the city in front of all the people. And all those people knew how Haman thought about Mordecai. They all knew it. That's why the Lord said, He that's abased shall be exalted, and he that's exalted shall be abased. The way up is down, the way down is up. Now that's, uh, that's a paradox, isn't it? A paradox is not two doctors, okay? A paradox is two statements of which both are true, but it seemed like they could not be. But they are, if you understand correctly, what's under consideration. So the Lord said the way up is down, and the way down is up. God resisted the proud. He exalts the humble. Then verse 12, And Mordecai came again to the king's gate, Haman hasted to his house mourning and had his head covered. And then he 
has another meeting with his wife and the wise people. Haman said, told Zeresh, his wife, and all his friends, everything that had befallen him. Then said his wise men, and Zeresh, his wife, unto him, If Mordecai of the seed of the Jews, before whom thou hast begun to fall, thou shalt not prevail against him, but shalt surely fall before him. Wow. What a wife. <laughs> she just spelled out your doom, Haman. She just, she just got through telling you, uh, you know, somebody said this is the first day of the rest of your life. She's telling Haman, this is the last day of your life. And while they were yet talking with him, came the king's chamberlains and hasted to bring Haman unto the banquet that Esther had prepared. Now we'll look in the next chapter, chapter 7 in our next session, but I just want to review just quickly here several points that should be very obvious interactions of God in his providence in the life of Esther and Mordecai. How did Esther become queen? She's a Jewish girl. She's in captivity. For her to become queen, the current queen of that day had to be set aside, which the king did. There's a beauty contest. Esther is selected as one of many to come before the king, and somehow or another she's selected by the king to become the queen. What about Mordecai being in position to overhear the plot of those two men to assassinate the king? I wonder how that came about. And then, when Mordecai instructed his niece Esther, who now is the queen, and though she's his niece, she is the queen, she has authority over him, but he instructs her to go before the king and make requests for her people, saying, you're a Jew too, and once it's known, your life will be no better than anybody else's. And she received the courage and the strength to do that. That's, see, I've tried to tell you this from time to time. In our own selves, apart from God, we're weak. In our selves, apart from God, we are just confused. In our, in our uh, selves, apart from God, we're, we're greatly afraid. But God replaces our fear uh, with courage, and God replaces our confusion with wisdom, and God replaces our weakness with strength. That's why when Paul was caught to the third heaven, the Lord told him, My strength is made perfect in weakness. And Paul says, For when I'm weak, then am I strong. You'll never be stronger, my friends. When you see just how weak you are by nature, apart from God, how weak you are, that's when you're in position to be strong in the Lord. Ephesians 6.10, Be therefore strong in the Lord in the power of his might. And the king having the sleepless night. What he says on that night, not another night, that night, on the very night of the, before the next morning, when Haman's going to come to the king and make his request known to build those, have those, to hang Mordecai on those billows, uh, excuse me, on those gallows that he's already built. He's already built them. But before he hangs him, he's going to tell the king about it. Get the king's blessing. And then Haman walking right in in the middle of the king's thoughts about what he wants to do to honor Mordecai who overheard the plot of the men that were going to assassinate him, and the plot was overturned. He's thinking, what can I do to honor him? And Haman just appears. Now, I talked to you a while ago about being at the right place at the right time. Haman's at the wrong place at the wrong time. <laughs> you know, I enjoy reading Romans chapter 8. 
Ephesians chapter 1, as much as any place in the Bible. But I'm going to tell you the truth. There's very few places in the Bible I enjoy reading anymore than what we read tonight.